Please stay tuned for important disclosure information at the conclusion of this episode. Hi, and welcome to The Long View. I'm Jeff Patak, Global Director of Manager Research for Morningstar Research Services. And I'm Christine Benz, Director of Personal Finance for Morningstar. Our guests this week are Michael Reckmeyer and Matthew Hand. Mike and Matt are Managing Directors at Wellington Management, where they oversee a number of prominent value investing mandates, including the stock sleeve of Vanguard Wellesley Income Fund, as well as Wellington's portion of Vanguard Equity Income Fund, among other duties. Mike's investing career began in 1984 at the State of Michigan Pension Fund, followed by eight years at Kemper Financial Services, after which he joined Wellington in 1994. He received both his bachelor's degree and MBA from the University of Wisconsin-Madison and is a CFA charter holder. Matt joined Wellington in 2004 after graduating from the University of Pennsylvania. Like Mike, Matt is also a CFA charter holder. Mike and Matt, welcome to The Long View. Good to hear you. Thanks. Thank you for your time today. So we don't usually get started with biographical or organizational details, but in this case, it might be helpful to do so as Wellington is it going to be quite as familiar to some of our listeners as are some of the other fund families that are maybe household names? So give us a quick thumbnail of Wellington, a firm that manages around a trillion dollars in assets, and tell us how you and your team fit in. Um, yes, Jeff. Thank you. Yeah, so Wellington, we're a privately based company located in Boston. And as you mentioned, we run about a trillion dollars of assets, and that's about 55% equities and 45% fixed income. And we're not as well known because we actually do not have our own mutual funds. We are the largest sub-advisor of other people's assets um, in the world. And as a result of that, people don't know us from that perspective. Vanguard is our largest client. We manage $350 billion for Vanguard. And it's a relationship we've had going back 40 years. Um, In fact, Wellington and Vanguard were one firm at one point in 1975, Jack Bogle. We split the firm and he started the Vanguard organization. And since then, there's been a strong relationship with Vanguard and Wellington throughout that time period. So as a team, there's seven people on our team. We call it the Value, Equity, Income, or Dividend-Orientated Team. And we're located in Radnor, Pennsylvania, just outside of Philadelphia. And we're just a couple miles away from the Vanguard complex. And how we're structured is we essentially consider ourselves a boutique within the larger Wellington organization. And as a team, we do all of our own fundamental analysis on the companies, do our modeling, valuation, stock selection. But the benefit we have is we can leverage the resources of Wellington with our central research analysts, our fixed income credit analysts, our ESG personnel. And so we have the broader perspectives that we add to our investment criteria. And the benefit that I have as a portfolio manager is I believe this brings the best available information to me for which to base our investment decisions. So Wellington has very much a team-driven approach, which certainly has its advantages. But who does the buck stop with when it comes to the performance of the strategies you manage? And how do you inculcate ownership for those decisions in your team? And more broadly, how do you foster accountability throughout the firm? Mm -hmm. Well, as a team, I am the ultimate decision maker for our team. But we have daily interactions about all the stocks within our portfolio and opportunities that we see. But ultimately, decision-making comes upon me. But in terms of how we try to incent a team, all of the team members are incented with performance incentives. We try to align our goals with the client's goals, and that's namely to outperform our benchmarks 
and do so in a risk-adjusted manner that is consistent with our clients' expectations and our objectives and approach. You alluded to the fact that you run yourselves, sort of operate like a boutique, but then you draw on the broader resources of the firm, including what sounds like a centralized analyst pool. And so ensuring that you've inculcated sort of that mindset of ownership for whatever sort of research and analysis they're furnishing to you, how has that worked out in practice? Maybe you can just sort of paint the picture for us of how you've managed that handoff between sort of the broader Wellington and then the smaller boutique that you're a part of. Um, well, we actually think it's very seamless. At Wellington, we strive on collaboration. And so we have daily meetings with all the firm. We have weekly sector meetings. And as a team, we meet daily. All the information that we generate will be put into a common database that is accessible to everybody within the firm. And this allows a dialogue among all the different investor personnels within the teams and the central research people. So we actually think it enhances the overall investment discussion. And I would just add that I think, you know, our goal is to be part of the investment discussion to contribute to the broader investment discussion and, you know, certainly utilize the depth and breadth of resources that are available to us from Wellington, both on the equity side, but also fixed income, other areas like ESG and and really just build a better mosaic and uh, more confidence in our investment cases and, and more understanding of potential downsides uh, in our process, which, which really focuses on protecting the downside while capitalizing on long-term sustainable dividends and capital appreciation potential. And then, I mean, I, I guess when I sort of look at your biographical details based on my understanding of how you operate, I mean, it seems like you're both player coaches in your own regard, right? You followed industries for a number of years. And so I would imagine that some of the sort of idea generation and sort of primary research work, you yourselves or some of your battery mates that are part of the nucleus that you work most closely with, you're doing some of that work with additional supports from the broader firm? Is that kind of a way to think about how it is you source and implement ideas? The sourcing of ideas can come from different perspectives. It could be something our team analysts come up with. It could be something that the portfolio managers on our team find, but also the, the central research analysts. They're always recommending their best ideas also. So, we're indifferent where the ideas come from. We're just trying to find the best opportunities in the marketplace that meet our clients' objectives. What's an issue or topic that the two of you constructively disagree on where you've arrived at different conclusions? And how have you worked that out in managing the portfolio? Uh, that, that's a good question. Often situations are not black and white um, for investing. And we had a situation in the first half of the year. We had a chemical company that Matt was following that we liked. We stress tested a dividend for a normal economic downturn. We felt the dividend was was fine. But actually, as we got into the COVID dislocation, the downturn was much more severe than what we anticipated. So when we re-ran our stress tests, uh, we came to different conclusions. Matt felt the dividend was sustainable in that environment, and I was uh, more uncertain. I was less confident of their ability to maintain it in the downturn. And at the same time that happened, we were seeing a lot of other opportunities present themselves just because of the broad-based downturn in the marketplaces. And some of those opportunities also had situations where dividends were attractive but were sustainable. So the decision I made was to exit that name and reinvest those proceeds into other opportunities that had very attractive appreciation potential as well as has a strong and sustainable dividend yield. I think a hallmark of um, what our team 
really tries to do is challenging our assumptions and thinking about what could go wrong and, and really avoiding the dividend cuts and value traps as best that we can. And so we have debates and constructive discussions all the time. And as Mike said, it's not usually cut and dry. There are discussions that evolve over time and, you know, analysis that you know we consistently look at and challenge ourselves. I would say that those type of disagreements and debate are really central to our process. And it's something that's really welcome uh, within our team and beyond and, and I think makes us better. Since you mentioned the pandemic and the need to stress test or doubly stress test some of the assumptions, what other changes to your process has that ushered in? I know that you're going to say that it it didn't cause any sort of seismic shifts in the way you approach things, but I have to imagine that maybe there's some adjustment that you've done with the pandemic having been the catalyst for that. Are there some examples of things that maybe you fine-tuned? Well, we've been running the annual stress test on our portfolio since the GFC. So something that we developed back then, and we would do it every year. So even when times were great, we were always trying to look at the downside because we've learned that sometimes you can't anticipate unexpected events, whether it be 9-11 or the COVID dislocation. So we always run assuming, looking at the downside scenario. So when we went into the COVID crisis, we had to readjust all of our assumptions. We based our downside on a normal economic recession. But the COVID dislocation was much worse than that. So we had to refine, redo our downside scenarios. And so with that, we did make some adjustments to the portfolio. And as well, during that dislocation, some opportunities presented themselves that we took advantage of. So we try to be always looking at the downside, but being opportunistic when the opportunities do present themselves. I asked about how you handle areas where you disagree, but can you talk about an issue where the two of you might be in lockstep and how you've sought to kind of stress test that by seeking out contrary opinions at the firm or outside the firm? Yeah, sure. You know, as as Mike discussed, the strategy really focused on downside protection. We're always trying to understand the other side of an argument, an investment thesis, and what can go wrong. And, you know, that's part of the benefit to us of being part of Wellington is having a lot of resources that can help with that and allow us to really challenge our assumptions. And I think one example of that that's a pretty good one is in the middle of last year, our purchase of Archer Daniels Midland, the agricultural company. You know, it's a company with a relatively low return on capital. And, you know, there were some significant questions about agricultural markets during that time. And so we saw a company with fundamentals in the sector that were closer to trough and an idiosyncratic profit improvement story that could drive returns on capital and earnings per share higher, all else equal, both on normalized earnings, but also trough, which was pretty important to us. And, you know, for our team, I think we were pretty well aligned on what the company was doing and where they were going, but we have a lot of experts internally that could help us out. And I think about David Chang, who manages some commodity portfolios for Wellington, you know, he and his team are extraordinarily knowledgeable on agricultural sector. And that was, you know, extraordinarily helpful to us over time. Or Kira Connors, who's a industry analyst on the fixed income side and is really familiar with the ADM balance sheet and the idiosyncrasies of it for an ag business that is somewhat complicated and really helping us gain comfort, both in the long-term potential of the investment, but also the downside case. I wanted to shift gears and talk for a moment about a stock you took a stake in that's payroll service provider, automatic data processing, ADP for short. It looks like you took that stake in the second quarter. And my question is, can you trace the arc of the decision that was made to add that name to the portfolio from, uh, I guess you'd call it discovery to execution? For instance, when you started looking at it, was it an idea that was sourced by 
an analyst and and maybe what drew that analyst to it? Why'd you buy it when you did? How did you think about the milestones for continuing to own your stake in it, albeit it's a recent purchase? I mean, it's always helpful to sort of trace the arc of ownership of a fund in a position, and it seemed like a decent one to start with. Is that one you can speak to? Sure, that'd be great. Thank you. Just ADP, it's high quality company, high returns on capital, strong balance sheet. But historically, it was just too expensive for us. The valuation was was too rich. But what happened with the dislocation when the markets sold off, ADP stock declined by about 40%. So that brought the valuation into our framework. And at the same time, because of the collapse in the stock price, the dividend yield increased from what was 2% to an over 3% dividend yield. So just as we were going through the dislocation of the marketplace, we identified the stock and started to do work on this. But the benefit we have is we have Bruce Glazer, who's a GAA or Central Research Analyst, and we could tap into his knowledge base about the company. He's been following this for years. He's much more up to speed about the fundamentals of the company. We interacted with him. We were able to set up some meetings with the company to further delve into some of the issues surrounding the company. And it was through this interaction, we decided to take a position in the name. This is a situation just where we monitor some stocks that they might not meet our criteria right now, but theoretically they could if they would fall into our valuation framework. And by having the central research analysts, it enables us to ramp up quickly on certain situations if the marketplace does create a dislocation. So would you say that that's kind of representative of the arc of ideas, the way that they travel before they enter the portfolio? You kind of monitor something in that way, and then when it falls into a more attractive valuation level, you begin to look at it more seriously? That often is the case. You know, we consider ourselves contrarian investors. And so we're looking for companies where there's a dislocation in the stock price. And often you have some stocks that would be characterized more as growth stocks, and they stumble to whatever the issue is, falls in valuation that will try to take advantage of it. So that's why we have the benefits of all these different companies flowing through our offices. And even if we don't own it right now, we can listen in and try to understand what the fundamentals are, what the strategies for the companies, because we never know when we're going to get an opportunity to take advantage of it. And by having our firm-wide resources that allows our team to ramp up and take advantage of those situations. I wanted to shift gears if we could and talk a bit about portfolio construction and risk management, how you approach that. Maybe we'll focus on Vanguard Wellesley Income, which as we mentioned earlier, you manage the equity sleeve of. It's actively managed, but it it follows a pretty straightforward approach. The portfolio is split roughly 35-65 between higher yielding stocks and investment-grade bonds and and you hold that mix more or less steady. It's been very successful over the long haul. But my question is, now that yields are pinned as low as they are and valuations by many measures look lofty, why should income-minded investors who maybe have come to rely on the fund feel quite as confident in the strategy's future prospects? But just in terms of how we're going to run the fund, we're not going to change the fundamentals of the fund. Um, the fixed income side, it's a heavy focus on investment-grade securities and government-backed securities. And the equity side, we're focused on high-quality dividend-paying stocks where dividends are sustainable and rising. And we think this combination does provide downside protection when we have markets come under stress. But the low interest rate environment, the 0% yields right now, they are a challenge to the fixed-income marketplace. The dividend yield of the fund 
is right around 2% right now. How we look at that going forward is if you assume stable rates, we would expect to see some appreciation of the yield component. And this comes about from the equity side of the portfolio. Um, our equities, we believe, will over time increase our dividends on a regular basis. Longer term, we think the dividend growth rate will be similar to that of the earnings growth rate. And as well as our expectation is over a longer term, the equity component will also give some capital appreciation to the fund. So this should help to enable some modest growth of the fund, as well as we should be seeing a modest increase in the payout ratio. So maybe to step back for a moment, and we can talk about some of those sort of particular aspects of how it is you build the portfolio and it'll be managed going forward, acknowledging that you're not planning on making any major changes. We understand that. But stepping back, what would you say to those who are now questioning the utility of investment-grade bonds, given how low yields are? I think in particular, they're questioning whether those bonds can continue to serve as the effective diversifiers they've been in the event of a stock sell-off. And and I suppose what gives you confidence in that from a fundamental standpoint? And I ask this recognizing that you're just managing the equity sleeve, important as that is, not the whole portfolio. But when you think about the whole proposition of the portfolio and why bonds will continue to be the bulwark they've been, you know, why do you think that would be fundamentally if you were to try to counter some of those who have been raising questions? But when you see equity market sell-offs, you do typically see interest rates decline. And so the reason the market sell-off is you know, prospects of slower economic growth or concerns such as that. So we do think in that environment, the high-quality national portfolio on the fixed income side will offer some buffer. They still have the Federal Reserve offering a backstop of the fixed income markets. And credit spreads, if you look within the investment grade, are right about in the middle of their range. So we do think they will offer some support for when you do get dislocations in the equity market. It looks like over the decade through 2019, about 40% of Wellesley's total return came from income and the remainder from capital appreciation. The portfolio was recently yielding about 2% with not quite 3% coming from the equity component and about half as much coming from bonds. So that's not a lot of yield. What kind of challenge is this going to present for you for the fund going forward? And what are the implications in terms of how you build the portfolio? Well, one of the challenges the fund faces, it is the prospects of higher interest rates. So over the next couple of few years, the Federal Reserve has talked about trying to keep rates pegged to around the zero bond to help pay the deficits and help to stimulate the economy. The longer term, the rising deficits, as well as prospects of inflationary pressures, it would be a clear headwind to the fixed income portfolios. So in talking to my counterparts on the fixed income side, who help run the fixed income portfolio, Mike Stack and Laura Moran, they're actively looking at that. And when they determine that the risks are starting to increase for higher rates, they will look to shorten the duration of the fixed income sleeve. So this would help to mitigate, but it will not completely neutralize the impact of rising rates. It will still be a headwind. What we would hope to happen, if that were to happen, is typically rising rates are associated with stronger economic growth. And as stronger economic growth would suggest improving earnings prospects, in an environment, hopefully, the equity markets would increase. So if that's the case, the hope would be that the equity markets would offer some offset to the uh, fixed income piece of the business offer more of a balanced overall return profile. 
It may be a bit of an off-the-wall question, but just in thinking about interest rate risk, or I suppose duration risk, in the equity sleeve of the portfolio, is that something that you're cognizant of? And is it a topic of conversation with the portfolio managers you mentioned who are on the fixed income side when it comes to Wellesley income? I guess I'm thinking about sort of the overall quality profile of the portfolio. You own more tech and healthcare than you used to. It can be argued that some of those cash flows are pushed further into the distance just because these are competitively advantaged businesses that throw off lots of cash. And therefore, it could be argued that maybe there is more duration to those names. So when you take that together with the longer duration of the fixed income side, maybe the strategy as a whole is longer duration than you're comfortable with. So is that a conversation that you have as a group ever? We don't talk a lot about the duration of the equity portfolio, but I guess theoretically from a dividend discount perspective, you know, if interest rates were to rise, that would put pressure on the discount rates. And some of these stocks with very high multiples, I would think would be vulnerable in that type of environment. So it would be the case for this portfolio, if you have rising rates, that would affect all equities. But because our valuations are below that of the overall marketplace, and we're not chasing some of these stocks where you know, the multiples are rich, it would be a headwind for us, but it could be more of a headwind for the broader market overall. One of the benefits of Wellesley's focus on income is stability. The fund has not been especially volatile, and it's also avoided deep drawdowns. The worst month-to-month loss was around 19% during the global financial crisis. So do you think differently about downside protection with yields as low as they are today? For instance, do you demand a wider margin of safety before investing in effect reducing your reliance on income? Well, from the equity side, we're not going to reach for yield. The worst performing stocks in the marketplace are the dividend cutters. So we're trying to focus on stocks where the dividends are sustainable and growing over time. But there are circumstances where we're willing to sacrifice some yield for growth. We like to look at our portfolio from a total return perspective, where we're looking at the sum of growth plus dividend yields to give us total return. And there are situations where we're willing to sacrifice some yield for better growth. And we actually think that that is longer term, a better value proposition for shareholders. We think a total return approach is superior from a longer term capital appreciation approach than one just focusing slowly on the dividends alone. And on the team, I'd say we always have thought about downside. And under Mike's leadership, you know, we've been looking at downside scenarios and risk to earnings and stock prices throughout the last decade. And so it's something we've always been focused on and continue to focus on because you can never be sure you know, what might cause that downturn. And so it's the focus of our team that, that's always been that way, continues to be. And, and that's why the downside analysis and the focus on sustainable dividends has been so important to the process. So I'm curious, I think I was looking at the portfolio as of June 30th, and I think this is a fairly representative example where you own the common shares in a name. I think Dominion Energy is the one I was looking at. It was not quite half a billion dollars worth of common but then also on the fixed income side, it looked like there was $170 million or so of short, intermediate, and long-term debt the same firm had issued. And I would imagine there's a certain – potentially there's there's a tension there between sort of how it is the firm manages the balance sheet. Obviously, you would like to see a nice and growing dividend over time, but one of the ways that they can achieve that is by levering up, which I imagine your battery mates on the fixed income side – wouldn't like. And so I guess in practice, in situations where you're owning both the common and the debt of the same firm, 
How, I guess, have you tended to work out your respective priorities in practice where maybe there would be a certain thing that you would want to see from the management team in terms of capital allocation, but the folks on the fixed income side might want the exact opposite thing? Well, we do monitor the combined exposures across the portfolio between the fixed income and equity counterparts. We have maximum hold positions, both fixed income and equities, and our largest position is well below that. So from the fixed income side, they operate um, with a pretty granular portfolio. They have about 350 different unique issuers. They try to take some significant bets within the portfolio. In general, our alignment with fixed income would be pretty similar because we're focused on quality balance sheets, sustainability of the dividends. And so we don't want to see a company be downgraded. We don't want to see a company go into junk status. That's not our framework. So actually, in this case, because they're focused on investment-grade securities, our companies tend to be investment-grade as well. We're actually in in alignment. But we do interact. When there is leverage in a company, our analysts will interact with their fixed-income counterparts on a regular basis just to make sure we understand the risks and that we are in alignment with their expectations. Dominion is a good example. I mean, our analyst on the fixed-income side, Chris Melendez, does a terrific job in has been really helpful in the last year about updates in the utility sector and a lot of changes at certain companies, Dominion included. And so, you know, we, we absolutely uh, utilize research and, and collaborate with him as well to really build the investment thesis that we have on the equity side. So it's a give and take that I think is additive to both sides of the equation. The fund's bond sleeve consists mainly of mid-grade corporates rated single A and triple B. That part of the market has gotten increasingly correlated with the types of high dividend stocks that you tend to own in Wellesley's equity sleeve. So how conscious is your team of this relationship? And is it the sort of thing that would warrant adjustments to the way that you pick securities and build your component of the portfolio? Well, how we're, we're looking at it, as I mentioned before, we'll look at the combined exposure of the overall fund. So that's our primary focus on monitoring those exposure between the two different asset classes. I wanted to shift the stock selection if we could. You're value investors, but it's also striking how many of the names you own would have been considered growth stocks not too long ago and just sort of running through Wellesley's top holdings. And this would hold, I think, for some of the other mandates that you manage. That would be true of Cisco, Comcast, Intel, Medtronic, Lockheed Martin, Progressive Insurance, all of which would have been found in the popular growth indexes about a decade ago. So can you talk a bit about how you've evolved as value investors with stocks like these increasingly coming into your orbit? I don't know if this is kind of of a piece with the ADP story that you relayed earlier, where it might have been thought of as a growth name. It was too expensive for you to own. And then it sold off and got cheap enough and the dividend large enough for you to consider. And so does that hold for a lot of some of these other names that I had mentioned? It does. Um, as a mentioned, we do take a contrarian perspective. And when you find high-quality companies where the valuation has dislocation, we'll try to take advantage of it. And a good example of that is with Comcast. Um, this is also a company that we admired uh, what the company was doing, but the valuation was just too rich. But a couple of years ago, they made the acquisition of Sky. And as a result of that, the stock declined by about 30%. So with the valuation collapse, and as well with the lower stock price, the dividend yield increased. It was something that came into our framework, and it was an attractive opportunity um, for us to add to the portfolio. So we try to look for these situations where other high-quality companies do stumble and try to take advantage of them. 
the equity sleeve of Wellesley's portfolio isn't as cheap in absolute terms as it used to be. And that mirrors the increase in valuations we've seen in the broader market and even in some popular dividend indexes. So how do you get comfort with the price risk that the strategy is courting today in sort of a big picture way? Um, you are correct. Valuations have extended for the markets over time. How we get more comfortable is when we buy a security for the portfolio, we're trying to find a security that's selling at a meaningful discount to the marketplace at the time of purchase. And our overall portfolio is at a discount valuation to the S&P 500. So we do feel that with a lower valuation, that does give us some downside protection versus the overall marketplace. We also believe that Look at the other criteria of our portfolio. Our dividend yield is well above that of the SP 500 yield. Our expected growth rate of the portfolio is similar to that or better than that of the S&P. So we, we feel the combined total return of our portfolio is superior to that of the S&P. Yet despite these better long-term prospects, we're at a discounted valuation to the marketplace. So we do think that over time, the structure of this portfolio should enable us to outperform on a longer-term basis. I think that's a good composite summary of what the portfolio looks like. I did want to drill down and maybe talk about one example of a name that maybe bucks the trend a little bit, that being Crown Castle International, which is a name you started buying in late 2017 and have ridden at nice gains in the time since. The stock boasts, I think recently it was around a 3% dividend yield. They've increased the dividend each year. You've owned it. It's profitably growing, but it also looks pricey. I think around seven times book, 23 times cash, 11 and a half times sales, 91 times trailing earnings for what that's worth. That wouldn't seem to leave a lot of margin for error. So my question is, can you talk about your thesis for this holding within the broader context of the portfolio in risk management? I would imagine that this is sort of one of those trade-offs that you make as a portfolio manager where you're willing to court a little bit more price risk as perhaps you are in this name, provided that it's offset somewhere else in the portfolio with something that's maybe nice and cheap on an absolute basis. Is that the case? Yeah, I can talk about it. Generally, we prefer to look at, you know, REITs with cash flow multiples. And, and so you referenced the multiple before, and, uh, you know, that has changed dramatically in, in the last three years. I will say when we initiated the position, you know, towers are not, a, I guess, a core real estate sector, or at least weren't considered to be at the time. And there was some controversy around a potential Sprint T-Mobile merger and what that would mean for near-term growth prospects, something that, given the continued demand growth for data uh, is something that we were comfortable with. And we were able to buy the stock at about a 16 times forward AFFO multiple with a dividend yield around 4%. So a, a really attractive combination for a company that has growth. And so a total return into the double digits at a very reasonable multiple versus the market in absolute and certainly versus the REIT sector. So the multiple has gone up, but I would say, I think that's that's more fair, that it's now priced more in line with some of the more core real estate sectors. And so while the multiple is higher, it's uh, not egregious at this point. And from a portfolio perspective, you know, this is a company that is a steady grower, resilient cash flows, even through economic cycles, something that's, that's very important to us, and a stated goal of 7 to 8% dividend per share growth. And so it fits really well with the portfolio objective that we have. And, you know, if I think about earlier questions about rates, you know, REITs are a sector where in general, uh, you know, the yields have been there, but valuations have been high. And so we haven't found a lot of good ideas in the real estate sector in recent years. Crown Castle was a unique one, but that's a sector that really can benefit if rates stay low for a long time. And so 
you know, we think uh, at the current valuation and, and with a strong dividend capable of growing that it, it has a, a good place in the portfolio for our clients. One of Wellesley's holdings, Philip Morris, has lagged in recent years, and it's one of the few blemishes on what is otherwise a very strong stock selection record. So the stock doesn't look too expensive today at around 14 times forward earnings. Given that, would you want to see the firm buy back shares more aggressively right now? So I don't, I don't want to talk necessarily about the forward outlook, but if we look historically, the company's performance in constant currency uh, has actually been strong, both on revenue growth and EPS growth. And for a business that's 100% virtually outside the U.S., you know, that's had a, a meaningful impact on earnings per share and also the dividend payout. And so it's a company that has performed well but lost a lot of earnings per share to currency, and therefore the dividend payout remains pretty high. Now, we are comfortable with the dividend, but for them to have done repurchases historically, that would have required you know, some additions of debt to the balance sheet and probably taking the leverage ratio up. In general, that's not something that we favor. You know, dividend sustainability is key to our process. And so I think what they have done, which is uh, measured dividend increases over the last couple of years, including one this week, has been something we've been happy to see. And if circumstances change, you, you know, maybe that answer can change too. But really, I think that the dividend payout and the sustainability of the dividend are key parts of the investment thesis. So I'm not surprised to have seen them not repurchase stock historically. I wanted to talk about energy for a moment. You've owned integrated oil, let's call it, for years, but you recently slashed your stake in in one of the names that's been a fixture in the portfolio. So it seems like a good time to see if you can update us on how your thinking has evolved, maybe not in that particular name, but just on integrated oil in general. Sure. Well, when we look at the supply demand of the energy sector, we think it's going to be challenged for the next several quarters. Inventories are still high, depending on the pace of economic recovery. You know, demand may take a while to get back to where it was in 2019. And taking a longer-term perspective, even once the inventories come back in balance uh, sometime next year, you have the prospects of Iran coming to the marketplace. They have close to 2 million barrels that are idle right now that could come back in the marketplace, which would further complicate the longer-term supply-demand of the sector. So this is an area where we have reduced exposures over the past year, and particularly in the first half this year. We like to see situations where the dividends are sustainable, but with the collapse of oil, you know, the collapse is much worse than what our stress tests were assuming. Oil got down to the single digit dollars per barrel. We had to revise some of our assumptions and we look at our stress tests. Um, we thought some of those defensive characteristics were being compromised. So we have reduced exposures to that particular sector. A number of the firms that you invest in boast competitive advantages of some kind. The moat might be brand equity, scale efficiencies, intellectual property, or some kind of network effect. Based on what you've observed over time, are these advantages as durable as they once were? And if not, how does that inform the assumptions you might make in modeling a security? It's a good question. There are some secular headwinds in the marketplace. And you know, we try to be aware of these. And if there are cycle headwinds, make sure that we're conscious of this and factor this into our assumptions. And the easy enough focus on is just what's the implication of Amazon? They're disrupting you know, several different industries, the retail space, shopping centers. So we've been aware of that for a while. And we just avoided that whole area. It's a secular headwind. And what we've seen is when you have 
economic downturns like we've seen right now, these cyclic headwinds tend to accelerate. And so this is an area that we've tended to, to avoid. So the one area we've had within the retail space, we've been focusing on the home centers. There, I think they have more durable moats around them. Their performance has been stronger than we would have thought actually coming into this, this economic downturn. But we try to avoid those situations where the secular headwinds are ahead of us, just because it just makes the forecast and long-term prospects more challenging. Yeah, that's a great question. It's, you know, we, we try to take a contrarian view on things, but certainly pay a lot of attention to developments in sectors and, and whether they be transitory or structural and understanding things that may be changing over the long term. While it may not impact short-term earnings estimates, as an example, it certainly can impact long-term estimates and the multiple that the stock deserves. So it's things that we pay attention to. I think the answer is different by company and by sector, but it's certainly something we pay a lot of attention to and you know try to have a view and and continue to evolve that view as we get more information. We had Vanguard's ex-CIO Gus Sauter on the podcast some months back, and he was retelling some stories about debates he'd had with his then boss, who you mentioned, the late Jack Bogle. One concern, portfolio turnover. Bogle, as you know, was one to decry manager's tendency to overtrade, but Gus countered, as he explained in our episode, that higher turnover might simply reflect the reality that exploitable opportunities weren't as large as before, and therefore managers had to make up for that by trading more. You don't trade stocks much. Your average holding period, I think, is five or six years. But do you think to compete, the managers of this fund, if you have to imagine the successors of the fund, will need to trade more often in the future for the reason that Gus mentioned? Well, we don't target turnover. It's just an outcome of our process. And so if you go before the GSC, our turnover was running 30 to 40%. In the GFC, it spiked to about 60%. As many of the stocks reached our target prices, we were you know, selling those and putting those proceeds into better appreciation potential opportunities. In the last several years, our turnover has declined to about 15 to 20%. It has spiked recently to about 35% with the COVID dislocation. And once again, it's a function of the opportunities that are available to us. With the stock market correction, we took the opportunities to purchase several new names, the portfolio, add to existing names where the valuations became attractive. So turnover is just, it's purely a function of the opportunities that we see and um, how we can exploit those opportunities that are presented to us. Yeah, the March-April timeframe is, is a good example. You know, we try to be disciplined to the process and disciplined to valuation as well. And so when the market was moving in March and April within Wellesley, we added, on the equity sleeve, we added uh, six new names to the portfolio over that time. And they're, they're stocks that we've known for a long time, you know, companies that we've admired that maybe didn't meet our valuation hurdle as an example, but things changed pretty quickly in that time frame. And so we were prepared and you know, certainly willing to act. And so turnover can move based on that. But as Mike says, we don't manage to that. Your firm manages hundreds of billions in equity assets. That probably gives you a good vantage point to observe changes in trading patterns and the overall complexion of the market. So has the boom in commission-free trading been apparent to you and your colleagues? And is it something that you've been able to take advantage of? You know, I don't, I don't have any real insight there. You know, we see some of these stocks, these high flyers, uh, and several articles about Tesla and the implications behind that. But what I'm doing is I'm just looking at the opportunity set that's presented to me, you know, our criteria. And so a lot of those situations where you've had retail investors supposedly having more of an impact in SEC, that really hasn't impacted our securities. So we're just looking at what's in our framework. Maybe to broaden out, when you think about who's on the other side of your trades, 
How has that changed over time? Is that something that you spend time thinking about as a portfolio manager, maybe as you're reflecting on why a name is mispriced the way you think it is? We do not think who's on the other side of the trade. Uh, when the opportunities present ourselves, we just try to look at the fundamentals. Um, that's where we have a strong team in place to do the analytical analysis. It's a natural leverage resource of our firm, try to look at counterpoints and arguments why stocks are under pressure. And we try to understand those because often there's controversy and we need to gain conviction in names that are under pressure. And then we look at the valuation of the companies. So we just look at things from a fundamental perspective. We try not to outthink ourselves and try to figure out why someone's selling on the other side of the trade. Well, Mike, Matt, this has been a very interesting discussion. Thank you so much for your time and invaluable insights. We really, really appreciate it. Thank you for your time today. Thanks for your time and interest. Appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thanks for joining us on The Long View. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe to and rate The Long View for Morningstar on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can follow us on Twitter at pristine underscore bands and at S-Youth1, which is S-Y-O-U-T-H and the number one. Finally, we'd love to get your feedback. If you have a comment or a guest idea, please email us at morningstar.com. Until next time, thanks for joining us. This recording is for informational purposes only and should not be considered investment advice. Opinions expressed are as of the date of recording. Such opinions are subject to change. The views and opinions of guests on this program are not necessarily those of Morningstar Inc. and its affiliates. Morningstar and its affiliates are not affiliated with this guest or his or her business affiliates unless otherwise stated. Morningstar does not guarantee the accuracy or the completeness of the data presented herein. Jeff Patak is an employee of Morningstar Research Services, LLC. Morningstar Research Services is a subsidiary of Morningstar Inc. and is registered with and governed by the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission. Morningstar Research Services shall not be responsible for any trading decisions, damages, or other losses resulting from or related to the information, data analyses, or opinions, or their use. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results. All investments are subject to investment risk, including possible loss of principal. Individuals should seriously consider if an investment is suitable for them by referencing their own financial position, investment objectives, and risk profile before making any investment decisions.